Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome to the New Books Network. Hello, everyone. I'm C.P. Leslie, the host of New Books in Historical Fiction, a podcast channel on the New Books Network. Today, I'm speaking with Jade Beer about her latest novel, The Last Dress from Paris. After a short run of murder mysteries, not completely finished even now, I'm taking a detour with this interview to a dual timeline novel mostly set in 1950s Paris, where Christian Dior's new look is taking the world by storm. But mysteries, like couture gowns, come in all shapes and sizes, and the present-day narrator of this novel is about to encounter one. Lucille, Thursday, October 2017, London. I could resent being here. A lot of women my age would. This job, as they'd see it, would sit on their to-do list toward the bottom, just below online food order and clean bathroom. Everything else would get a line satisfyingly struck through it, but this entry would be pushed into next week, maybe even the week after that. A fresh list would be made, and still it would be at the bottom. But visiting my grandmother is honestly the highlight of my week, every week. I look forward to it the way other women look forward to a cocktail or an hour in the bath alone. I love her more than any other person on this planet. Granny Sylvie has outlived Concord and Woolworths. In two hours of chit-chat, we can hop from the first episode of The Archers to the moon landing via the death of Elvis and the Queen's coronation. Even now, she'll surprise me, like the time a couple of months back when she suggested we play a game of chess. I was aware of the board tucked in the corner of her sitting room on an elegant antique table with gently curving legs, but to my shame, I'd always assumed it was my grandfather's, and she couldn't bear to part with it. It took her about 12 minutes to beat me. Her mind three moves in the future, mind still warming up. So, she might look old, and I say look, because I certainly don't think she feels it, but she's razor sharp. Unlikely as it sounds, I have to raise my game for a trip to Granny's. And now, please join me in welcoming Jade Beer. Hi Jade, I look forward to talking with you today. Thank you so much, and, and thank you for your interest in my book, I really appreciate it. This is, by my count, your third novel. How did you start writing fiction? Well, I had always been a journalist. My, you know, my whole career I've always um, written, but albeit in a very um, different way, I suppose, because I, I sort of started out on newspapers. I'd worked on The Guardian and The Independent and The Daily Mail here. And it wasn't until, I guess, about maybe 15 years ago, I shifted across to magazines. And that's when my kind of work-life balance got a lot healthier. Um, In the days of newspapers, it was very much, you know, kind of 10 a.m. to 10 p.m. at your desk. And there was absolutely no way I could have ever conceived of writing a book whilst doing that kind of job. But once I moved across to women's magazines, it did sort of open up pockets of time in my life that I I hadn't previously had and then I moved to Condé Nast which for those people who don't know they're they're a big publisher of 
titles like Vogue and Glamour, GQ, Vanity Fair, and I was editing one of their titles, and that gave me even more control over my day, I suppose. But the, the big sort of shift for me came in 2015 when, although I was still working in London, I, I moved out of the city. My, my family and I moved to the countryside. And that put me on a train for about three hours every day, which sounds awful, but actually it was fantastic because it gave me this huge kind of window of time every day where people, if, if I didn't want them to, couldn't get hold of me. Um, and I got a lot of work done in that time. And, and that's when the first book was written in, in, on those kind of commutes. And it was it was an amazing thing to do, really, for me, because I, as a journalist, I've been very much used to writing articles that were sort of 500 words, maybe a thousand words. And then suddenly there was this prospect of a hundred thousand words. And so I really did, did have very little confidence in the beginning that I was going to pull it off. So I didn't really tell anyone um, outside of my immediate family that I was doing it. And I, I had a lot of help along the way. I, I sort of worked with lovely freelance editors who sort of helped me build some structure around it. But, you know, in that, in that first sort of year, I was writing a chapter a week, which kind of amounted to about 3000 words a week. Um, which on a good day is pretty much what I would do in a day now. Um, so, yeah, it was a sort of very, very slow build up to it. But um, it, the, the big turning point was really moving and having finally that sort of window of time to actually do it. Could you give us a brief introduction to your previous books, The Almost Wife and What I Didn't Say? Yes. So The Almost Wife was written whilst I was editing Condé Nast Brides. And... It seemed to make sense, really, given that I was kind of inhabiting this world of very high-end luxury weddings, that I would place one of those weddings, I suppose, at the centre of my first novel. And it wasn't a book about weddings. It was much more a book about female relationships and friendships. But it had one very big glamorous wedding at, at sort of at the centre of it. And the story really focused around a woman called Helen who owned a bridal boutique in the middle of the English countryside. She had a very sad story herself, a very sad backstory, but she was a wonderful woman who took on a lot of the troubles of all the kind of brides-to-be who entered her boutique. So at the beginning of that book, none of those women who are visiting the boutique know each other, but by the end of the story, they're sort of all in the same room together and there, there have been sort of significant consequences for each. And the second book was a continuation of that. Helen, who is enormously good at what she does, buys a boutique in London, and then we see this whole new diary of women um, sort of coming through her door. So that was how it all kind of began. But, you know, I'd say The Last Dress from Paris is a very different sort of book in terms of the complexity of the plot and the dual timelines and the historical setting. Those things make it very different from the, the first two books that I'd written. You mentioned in your author's note that The Last Dress from Paris grew out of a Dior exhibition that you visited. Tell us about the exhibition and what made it so inspiring for you as a novelist. So that was back in uh, February 2019. That, that exhibition came to London to the Victorian Albert Museum. It's called um, Christian Dior, Designer of Dreams. And 
it really charted the development of Christian Dior right from the inception back in 1947 through to the present day. And I think it was six creative directors' works that they had that the exhibition spanned. And it had originally opened in Paris to mark the 70th anniversary of the label. And then they had reimagined it basically for the London audience. So um, there was a lot of new content that they thought would be more appealing. And I actually shouldn't have been there on the day because I, I had a ticket to go, but I was so swamped. I remember in the office that day, sort of, you know, piles of proofs that I hadn't got round to reading magazine proofs. And, and I wasn't going to go and my creative director on the magazine said, you know, you've got to, it will be really inspiring. And, and the whole point of going at, at that stage was that we were looking for ideas for fashion shoots and, you know, new inspiration for our own magazine cover. I didn't really go thinking that there was going to be a, a novel coming out of it. But the exhibition was amazing. They had, I think it was 500 exhibits in total, 200 of those were really um, incredible original pieces of haute couture. There were lots of design drawings, fashion illustrations. Um, they had this amazing thing I remember at one point where they were showing lots of film content as you walked around the exhibition and they had very cleverly kind of spliced together the original film footage from the very sort of relatively speaking small um, shows, fashion shows that used to go on in the boutique. And they had sort of juxtaposed that with the very mad, colourful, loud spectacle of runway shows today. And that sort of probably was the first kind of seed, I suppose, of seeing those two things next to each other that just made me think there might be something in it. And of course, they have things like um, the amazing toile room where you stepped into this incredible space where it was just floor to ceiling white toiles, which are the sort of prototypes of the real dresses before you get to them. So typically, they're made out of quite a cheap calico or cotton material and the point of them is they're there to test the engineering of a dress before it's actually cut from the real cloth so you were able to sort of stand in a room that was just floor to ceiling um prototypes of the dresses as they were going to become and it was a really awe-inspiring exhibition i think possibly one of the most if not the most successful that the vna had ever hosted and it, it I suppose it was largely because it was such an exciting time then for fashion it was it was focusing on, on that period after all the kind of war deprivation when women's clothing was very functional for a long time and then suddenly it wasn't and Dior was really making women feel beautiful again and you know you had these incredible sort of rounded shoulders and full busts and those tiny handspan waists, enormous skirts on things. And it, it was very feminine, feminine again, that fashion. Um, I sort of walked around that exhibition today, uh, then back in 2019, and I was, I was very inspired by the dresses. It, you know, it was impossible not to be impressed by them. But the thing that I kept returning to in my mind was the women who had worn them you know who were these women and wouldn't it be the most amazing thing if you could sit down with them and they could talk to you about what happened on the occasions that they actually 
wore these dresses and that that was the thing probably more than anything that I sort of held on to when I when I left the exhibition that day I think. The novel begins in 2017 with Lucille, as indicated in my introduction, uh, although a large part of it does take place in 1953 and 1954. Why did you want to include the dual timeline? What does it add to the book structure? Well, I knew that I wanted the book to be about a really significant dress. That was the sort of first and foremost thought that I had, I suppose, that I wanted a very important dress to be central to the story. I didn't want it to be a wedding dress because I'd done that. You know, I'd, I'd had by this point several years writing about wedding dresses. I didn't, I didn't want to do that again. So the next obvious thing was to make it a couture dress, you know, a dress that was made with one woman very specifically in mind and was going to be tailored, you know, down to the millimeter to her individual measurements. So I, I knew if it had to be couture, then it was going to be Paris. And if it had to be Paris, then it was going to be um, Christian Dior. And I think the important thing then was that I didn't want to write about Paris from afar. I wanted to really place the reader there. And I thought it would be much more exciting to do that so that they would, you know, feel and smell and experience Paris in the same way that, that Alice does in the book, you know, whether she's kind of circulating one of her drawing rooms or whether she's moving through the food market at um, Les Halles. I, I wanted them to be really immersed in it. So it then sort of provided, I think, a really great impetus to have structured it that way, I hope, if I've done my job properly, because you would the way it works now is that you get a sort of hint of trouble that's brewing in one timeline, and then you see that acted out in the next. And, and vice versa, it kind of works both ways. So that, I, I hope, really helps to drive the momentum um, of, of the plot through. And it, I also in, enjoyed being able to write in different ways for the different women. So Lucille is all told in the first person and, um, and Alice in the third, which I felt hopefully hope to pull, you know, pull those timelines apart a little bit as well when, when you actually needed it to work the other way. So I hope I achieved that. It sort of felt like I had when I got to the end of it, but of course you never really know until other people start reading it, I suppose. I found it very effective. I mean, dual timeline stories can be problematic because so often the history is way more dramatic than the present. And so the modern day heroine comes off sounding whiny because she's all freaked out about some tiny problem where people are, are, you know, worried about life and health. But this one does not have that effect on me because Lucille really carries the mystery for the um, reader. In other words, she wants to know and therefore we want to know, and, and her suspense becomes our suspense, whereas if it were told strictly from Alice's point of view, it would still be interesting, but it wouldn't have that sort of, um, you know, I really need to know what happens next quality. Lucille herself is a very appealing character. Uh, she's modern in her attitudes and her speech, and she's easy to relate to. What can you tell us about her life and personality as revealed at the very beginning of the story? Because we want to keep the mystery going. We don't want to give too much away. Yes, got to be careful. Um, 
Lisa was really coasting through life, I think, at the beginning of this book, you know, not standing up for herself. She's got an obnoxious boss that has no respect for, for her and therefore she has very little respect for him. Um, she's kind of tolerated a boyfriend who doesn't excite her at all. And perhaps most sadly, she's kind of ignored and forgotten by her own mother. You know, when, when the book opens, she's missed Lucille's birthday for the fifth year running and it's you know she's sort of putting up with a lot of things that are not right she's not being vocal about it but despite that she does have ambition and intelligence and and she knows that she's capable of more and I think or maybe the important thing is her grandmother knows that she's she's capable of a lot more and her grandmother, I'm not sure if she pronounces it the French way, Sylvie or just Sylvie, but she sets the action in motion by soliciting Lucille's help. What does she want of Lucille and why does Lucille agree? So when we meet those two, it is Lucille's birthday and they're having tea together in um, Sylvie's cottage on Wimbledon Common, which is an area I used to live in, actually. So it was so nice to be able to kind of visually revisit that. But yeah, the two of them are having tea together. Lucille's had to bake her own birthday cake because nobody's sort of bothered to think about doing that for her. And, you know, her grandmother is sort of feeling the weight of the disappointment and how it could be so much more. And she presents her with a birthday card that has um, a message in it, basically, saying that she's going to send her to Paris and she wants her to have an adventure. And I think she says, she, you know, she wants her to see things and do things and meet people. And, you know, that all sounds kind of simple enough. Um, and then the grandmother explains that there is a sort of slight catch to it, which is that she wants Lucille to retrieve and bring back um, a couture Dior gang that she wore there back in the 1950s. And we kind of understand immediately that this is not an item of clothing that Lucille equates with her grandmother at all. So you already kind of get the sense that something is not quite right here. And um, Sylvie explains that this dress is with, um, had been loaned to a friend basically who is now deceased. So it's, it's time for it to come back. And that sort of sets us up very nicely then for Lucille taking up the challenge. With chapter two, we move into the historical timeline uh, with the introduction of Alice Ainsley. Before we get to Alice herself, uh, let's talk a bit about the dresses. Uh, each of her chapters is named after a particular Dior creation, each of which has a distinct name uh, and a hint to the listeners. You can run an internet search on the names and find pictures of the dresses, which is really cool. Uh, this is the it's the last one that particularly holds secrets, um, so we're not going to talk about that one at all. But how did you select the other seven? Well, I really wanted people to be able to see the dresses. Um, you know, I, I knew that as a reader, that's the sort of thing I would do if I was reading this book. I would be stopping and, and Googling them as I went. And, you know, there was a very brief moment in the beginning where I thought, would it, would it be easier if I fictionalised the dresses? Would that give me greater freedom? You know, I sort of considered it for a while. And then actually what you realise very quickly is if you're going to go that route, then that would have put the onus on me to create a dress that was even better and more fabulous than something Dior had created, which was obviously never going to happen and I was going to fail miserably. So um, it, it sort of had to be real. And I felt that that would hopefully deliver a sort of another level of enjoyment for people. And then 
a lot of that had to be dictated by the timeline. So I was very strict that I would only include dresses in the story that were actually part of the collections at that time. I didn't want to waver off that too much because I think if you start to be a little bit lax with that in the beginning, then it, it, it might have all unraveled and we'd have had things being shown in the early 50s that actually weren't designed until years later. So that sort of narrowed down the choice a little bit more. And then the other key thing was that I wanted to be able to go and see these dresses for myself. So a lot of them I had seen in the exhibition, but of course you're kind of shoulder to shoulder with hundreds of other people on the day and um, you're there behind glass. You can't really get a true sense of them. So I looked um through the Dior archive sorry not the Dior the, the Victorian Albert Al archive and identified the dresses that were actually available to study and that narrowed it down even further so um th those were the sort of driving forces really once I'd taken those things into account it was really pointing towards a, a smaller collection of dresses and I then just very simply spent one afternoon happily flicking through the book that accompanied the exhibition and that was an amazing book because it was full of full bleed full color photography of the dresses and then it's really about I think as a writer feeling some sort of emotional reaction when you look at the dress you know some did that more for me than others and I sort of hope that if I was kind of more moved by one um, than others then hopefully other people following and reading the book would be so yeah that it was a sort of part practical and part emotional choice I suppose. Well that's a great lead into the next question because the first dress is the Signe Noir, uh, the black swan and it represents Alice's introduction to Dior's boutique so uh, what does it look like and what appeals to her emotionally about it why does she feel she has to have it? It, it is an amazing dress. Um, it's black, strapless, it's an evening dress, and it's made from silk satin and a very sort of rich velvet. Um, it's actually in two parts. So you have this kind of quite heavily boned bodice that's lightly padded. So anybody wearing that dress would not need to, to put underwear on a, a, underneath. It's all there built into the dress. Um, and it has this run of hook and eye catches down the back of the bodice so that when it's fastened, it is literally sort of, um, you know, you, you couldn't get anything between the dress and, and the woman's skin. It, it fits perfectly on top. And then it kind of explodes out into this very full skirt, which is made of panels of, again, it's um, silk satin and velvet. So it has a very sort of, soft sheen to it um it's also really multi-layered this skirt so it, it holds its shape it's not it's not a particularly fluid dress it's quite statuesque um and it has this enormous bow that sits on the left hip and again that's padded so it holds its shape um and i suppose that that kind of dress would have been so in keeping with the sort of surroundings in which Alice was wearing these dresses, you know, in the sort of ballrooms of Paris at the time. Um, and I think it's quite grand, but it's also, I suppose, like a lot of Dior's clothes were. It's also, it sort of makes you believe that it's quite 
simple when you look at it. You know, there's nothing, there's no bright colour on it. It's very monotone, but all of the kind of work is going on underneath and in the construction of it. And because of the way that it's made, um, with those two pieces, the bodice and the skirt having to be fastened together, so there's a whole other series of hook and eyes that join the two and lips as well that join those two pieces together. So it's the kind of dress that there is absolutely no way you could get in and out of it on your own. You would have to be the sort of woman who um, was having help getting dressed. And that obviously is Alice. That is the world in which she lives. And what can you tell us about Alice herself, uh, her situation, what she's doing in Paris, and a bit about her personality at this early stage in her life? Well, she's she's young when we meet her. She's only um, 25. She's the only daughter of very sort of socially ambitious parents who are, are quite pleased with themselves that they've managed to marry her off so well. And when we meet her, she's, she is quite newly married, so she's not long returned from her honeymoon in Italy with her husband. And we sort of see her adjusting to this life in Paris as the wife of the British ambassador to France. Um, she lives in the government residence, which is this really impressive historical home. She has staff. She's got a, a really generous clothing allowance. And, you know, she kind of sets about her role of hosting these very glamorous and very important parties, which are all pretty much for her husband's benefit. You know, they're for his associates and his colleagues and his contacts. So, She's very intelligent, she's beautiful and she's ambitious, but she sort of finds herself in a world where her role is very, very um, tightly defined, um, not, not least of all by Albert, actually, her husband. And he has lost interest in her, is, is, I suppose is the polite way of putting it. When the, when the book opens, we get the sense quite quickly that, you know, all is not right there. And they, she has these wonderful memories of their honeymoon where he was very relaxed and very open and, and, and seemingly very honest with her about what his ambitions were in life. And then the second they arrive in Paris, he goes on to official mode and, and the sort of love seems to evaporate from their relationship very quickly. So she's someone, I think, at the beginning that she appeared to have this very enviable lifestyle and a lot of the women that she entertains. Um, you can tell her very sort of envious of the world in which she's operating, but it's it's really not long until you start to realise that, you know, she's actually quite desperately unhappy. And when we meet her first, uh, she's looking for a lady's maid, and you've done a lovely job of explaining why she needs one. <laughs> she soon hires Marianne, uh, who's known as Anne, among those she feels close to. Uh, Anne quickly becomes Alice's closest friend. What draws these two women together and what do we need to know about Anne? Well, Anne is half British, so the, the two of them seem to have this quite natural affinity from the second they meet, really, despite the fact that Anne is several years older than her. But Anne is very loyal, she's very discreet, she's very kind, she's kind of all the things that Alice needs at this point in time. Um, you know, in, in complete contrast to a lot of other people that Alice encounters, Anne is completely without ego, um, very happy to blend into the background. And you get the kind of sense, I think, at the beginning that despite their real difference in social standing and wealth, that there is no way on earth Anne would swap places 
uh, with Alice. She's she's very grounded, and she also has the mark of Albert very early on in the book. Um, there's a scene where she's being interviewed for the job of um, Alice's lady's maid, and you know Albert comes blustering into the room and is quite rude to both of them, and you can see it really unsettles Alice, and she's not comfortable with it. She's embarrassed by it, and she feels she needs to sort of apologise on his behalf. And Anne doesn't really break stride, you know, she's the one in the job interview and she just lets the whole thing sort of slide off her and she carries on. So, um, you know, she's she's the sort of strong um, force, I think, that Alice really needs at the beginning. She's also a lover of fashion. So you, we see the two of them bond over that a little bit as well. Another vital relationship in the 1950s part of the story is between Alice and Antoine. Uh, we meet him that very first evening when Alice is wearing the black swan. Um, I know you probably don't want to say too much about him, but who is is he in general and in terms of his place in Alice's story? So he's much closer in age to Alice than Albert is, um, and, and that's quite significant I think in terms of their sort of early uh, interactions with each other he's one of Madame de Parc who lectures at the Sorbonne in Paris and his father is a wealthy French banker and they have these kind of great ambitions for him to enter the world of politics um, his mum drags him along to kind of various social engagements in, in order to try and kind of advance his opportunities in life I suppose but he is He's slightly rebelling against that world. He's he kind of you know, he's refusing to live on the kind of right bank of the city. He prefers the kind of earthier uh, left bank, which is having a real kind of creative renaissance at that period in time. It's full of writers and musicians and artists, and that's where he sees himself. He has ambitions to be an artist himself, and he's someone who doesn't really play by the rules of social engagement. You know, he gets much closer to Alice physically in their first meetings than it's appropriate, you know, for him too. He's, he's never quite smart enough. His shoes will be dirty or his tie won't be quite straight or he clearly won't have brushed his hair. So he, you know, you're getting these sorts of signs that he's not, he doesn't care about this world despite, you know, what his parents want for him. And that really appeals to Alice at the beginning of the book, I think, because she finds it quite daring because she's so trussed up and, you know, she's so restrictive in the way she has to behave. So to see him be looser is quite appealing, I think. Um, and I think she sees a level of perceived honesty in Antoine at the beginning that she is just not capable of herself. And that is also very appealing. So... Um, yeah, that, that's the thing that really sort of turns her head at the beginning, I think. Let's move back to the almost present now. Uh, Lucille was originally sent to Paris to find one dress, or so she thought. To do that, she contacts a woman named Véronique, uh, who almost immediately informs Lucille that the dress she came for is missing and that her grandmother knew that all along. Where does that leave Lucille? Uh, well, she's quite defeated, I think, at this point. Um but she's determined not to give up. So I think she feels more than anything that having embarked on this challenge, that she just cannot let her grandmother down. She can't go um, home empty-handed. Um, Veronique is the daughter of the deceased friend who um, the dress had been loaned to. And so really at that stage, 
uh, of the game. She's she's Lucille's only hope, and um, thankfully she's as kind of gripped by the story as Lucille is. So the two of them sort of, you know, start to join forces, I suppose. And Veronique works at the Museum of Decorative Arts in Paris, so she is able to tap into a little bit of fashion knowledge from her colleagues, which is obviously enormously helpful. It's the it's the thing that um places Lucille into Bettina's, which is the secondhand fashion boutique that um it is in the area of Paris where all of the factories and the and the sort of fabric stores were based back in the 1950s. And it had a reputation then for um being the place to go if you wanted to find you know, a, a wonderful piece of ready-to-wear fashion, and sometimes couture pieces came through the door. So it thrived back in the 50s, and that's the sort of best lead they've got at that stage. That's the thing that sort of sets the two of them off together. You know, that, that's something that Veronique is able to help with. And while trying to hunt down the missing dress in Bettina's, in fact, uh, Lucille runs into Léon. Uh, who is he and how does he become involved in the hunt? So he is kind of the classic French guy that we probably um, all wish that we'd met when we were single, I suppose. He's really beautiful. He's very charming. Um, he's a photographer. That's what he does for a living. But he's also the grandson and the original owner of Bettina. So he is able to help Lucille kind of navigate her way through the city uh, whilst liaising with his grandfather, who's able to filter in a bit of sort of, you know, vital information as they go. Um, he's kind of a, a bit of a breath of fresh air, I think, for Lucille, because he's fun and, he, and he's seemingly quite uncomplicated at the beginning. So, um, yeah, he sort of steps in and provides a level of help that just could, could otherwise not, not come, I suppose, for her. And what would you like people to take away from The Last Dress from Paris? Well, I suppose on a really kind of surface level, it's it, the story is about the power of a kind of great dress, you know, what it can achieve for you. And I, I really hope people will be moved by it. I hope they will feel a real emotional connection to um to the story and to the characters and my my father read it recently and um he's in his 80s now and he said to me um i knew that he'd finished reading it and a couple of days had gone by and he hadn't called me and i thought god this is embarrassing he obviously doesn't like it he's trying to think of a way of breaking that to me and then he called me and said that he felt the most amazing sense of relief at the end of the story that he felt so relieved that certain things had happened and that certain things had fallen into place and he, and he was okay with the things that hadn't. And I thought actually that was a really nice feeling for somebody to take away that there was a sort of feeling of relief. But I hope it will also tap in a little bit to that just sense of how easy it is to envy other people's lives when you actually don't know what's going on in them. I think that's quite an important thing you know we're all kind of guilty aren't we I suppose at looking at things on social media and I feel very um hot on this topic because I've got a teenage daughter so it's, you know everybody's always living a better life than you are and that that's the sort of thread that that comes through in this book I hope as well that things you know things are not always better elsewhere just because they appear that way 
That's an excellent point. Uh, this book has just come out. Do you already have something else in the works? Yes, so I finished the first draft of the next one. Um, so that's down and I'm now editing it. So, I mean, there's a lot, a lot of work to do on it, but it's going to have similar threads. It's going to focus this time on a very famous British designer. It will be dual timeline and it will be cross-generational again. There'll be a massive focus on female relationships. Um, that's probably about as much as I can say, I think, because it will change enormously probably from where it is now to, to what we'll eventually publish. They always do, don't they? <laughs> it's impressive. Yeah. <laughs> For the best, hopefully, but yeah, I think so. Well, thank you so much for sharing your time with us, Jade, and good luck on the next book. Oh, my pleasure. Thank you so much. And thank you for listening to our podcast. Once again, I'm C.P. Leslie, the host of New Books and Historical Fiction, a podcast channel on the New Books Network. And today I've been talking with Jade Beer about The Last Dress from Paris. Find out more about her at jadebeer.com. Like us on Facebook, search for NB Historical Fiction, and follow us on Twitter at New Books Network. If you do, you'll see each time we post a new interview. You can find out more about me and my books at cplesley.com, where I upload expanded posts about the interviews and in general discuss history, historical fiction, and the rapidly changing publishing industry. Goodbye until my next conversation about historical fiction on the New Books Network.